a reasonable individual to feel terrorized, frightened, or threatened. And that actually causes the victim to feel terrorized, frightened, or threatened. Please remember, I can't name a single instance of a black person being able to invoke the Michigan Ethnic Intimidation Act. I can't think of that. I can't think of a time that a black person in the state of Michigan has been able to invoke that act and actually get any meaningful redress. I can't remember it. So to my folks up there in Detroit, Lansing, wherever, have any black folk ever been able to use this? Because I can't remember any black people in the state of Michigan I've never heard invoked before now. When have black people been able to use this? You can't tell me it hasn't been brought up in court. Every attorney in the world brings up every single law in court. So what I'm saying, well, why is it that this never came up before? Why is it we never heard this before with everything that happens to black folk all over the place? Why has we never heard of this before? In Benton Harbor. Why is it we've never heard of it before? Asking for a friend. says here, if passed, penalties would be based on how the supposed victim and court, quote, feel about a particular matter. What constitutes as being deemed intimidation and harassment would be up to the interpretation of the listener and a local prosecutor. Critics argue that the legislation could infringe on free speech rights and undermine the principles of due process. Michigan Democrats have been in the priority to further protect LGBTQ plus people since they took control of all levels of state government this year. This is Roland Martin, by the way. This is Roland Martin. Vote Democrat down ballot. Remember those jackasses? By the way, this, this is Roland Martin's political strategy here. Nothing for black folk. Nothing for black people at all, and they're going back and bastardizing and mutating the laws that were supposed to at least do something for us and have never even been used for us and using it for everyone else except for us. This is what I touched on here yesterday about the Supreme Court decision for affirmative action. What was their basis? The 14th Amendment. The whole purpose of affirmative action was because the federal government and the states we're not protecting our Fourth Amendment rights. When you take a look at our income, when you take a look at our mortality levels, when you take a look at all those things, our 14th Amendment rights are not being protected. They're not being honored under the Constitution. That's why you had to have further acts every time you turn around. If the, Constitu if the Constitution of the United States were actually being followed where black people are concerned, we wouldn't need a Civil Rights Act of 65, 69, and everybody else. You wouldn't need a Voting Rights Act. You wouldn't need all of these other continuous laws being passed if the Constitution itself were actually being followed and obeyed. We wouldn't need any further laws. You're right. The Constitution does give us the rights. The problem is you only have the rights that you can enforce. It's not a right and it's not a law if it's not enforced. Prohibition taught you that. So if the Constitution were actually being followed, no, we wouldn't need all these other laws. 
You wouldn't need every state to go through here. We wouldn't need hate crime statutes that they're only using to prosecute against black folk, by the way, which is why we got to go back and get another law to stop them from targeting us with the first laws that they made. The first laws that were supposed to be made to protect us, they're protecting everybody else now and targeting us. So now we got to go because they, we had to get laws made because you weren't under the Constitution. Now we got to get another set of laws made to stop you from targeting us under the laws that were made when you were not honoring the Constitution. It turns into that. That's where we are now. So it's turned into a cruel joke on their part. But it's not a joke when it's targeting you for death. In March, lawmakers codified LGBTQ plus protections into the state's civil rights law permanently outlawing discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity in the state. This new hate speech bill passed in the Democratic-controlled House 59 to 50 and will now move to the Michigan State Senate, also Democrat-controlled, for further consideration. If approved, it would it would expected okay, somebody needs proof right this. If approved, it is expected to be signed into law by the Democratic State Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Didn't some folks try to kidnap her a little while ago? Okay, I see that she's back in rare form. Looking like Caitlyn Jenner. Distinguished Professor Emeritus William Wagner, an expert in constitutional law and former federal judge, warns that the legislation could be used to silence conservative viewpoints and would oppose the due process required by the Constitution. Isn't it amazing how all these folks invoke the Constitution when they're white? Now, when you're black, the only thing you get told is the Constitution does not protect you. You go to court and you get told the Constitution doesn't protect you. White folks show up, the Constitution protects every damn thing. It protects from coming and going. It protects who agrees and who disagrees. If I'm telling the truth here tonight, Y'all give me the thumbs up in the chat room and hit the likes button for me. There's over 3,000 people in here listening live. If I'm telling the truth, give me the thumbs up emoji in the chat room and hit the likes button for me. If you don't like it, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. I want to talk to y'all tonight because everybody's watching affirmative action. I'm watching all these other things going on. I'm watching these other things going on. They go on to say here that, make no mistake about it, those advocating for this legislation will wield those policies as a weapon capable of destroying conservative expression or viewpoints grounded in the sacred, Wagner told the Daily Wire. So the right-wingers are out here talking and whatnot, but you got to understand these laws have never been used to protect black people. That means that the laws will be used to be weaponized against black people. That's what that means. White folks will stay protected. These laws will be used and weaponized against black people. That's what will occur there. This is the cruel joke, the cruel sense of humor of white supremacy. Oh, don't worry, this will help you out. And it turns in that. It turns in that. As you can see here, they have some of these screenshots of what they were referring to here. 
Some of the relevant parts here are, if any of the following conditions apply, a person who violates subsection 1 is guilty of a felony punishable by imprisonment for not more than five years, or a fine of not more than $10,000, or both. So now we're up to five years and $10,000. And you thought it was black folk, well, it's two years, $5,000, or both. That's it. What does the violations have to be? A, the violation results in bodily injury or severe mental anguish. Well, so you see how they're following the original law here and how they're improving on it. I say improving advisedly. We went from causes physical contact with another person to results in bodily injury or severe mental anguish. Now, you do understand what that means, right? What that means is that if a Jeffrey Epstein type in Michigan wants to sit up here and shake their drawers in front of your children, You tell them to get out from in front of your kids like that. They will tell you that they were intimidated and suffered severe mental and emotional anguish. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Now, if you're black, don't expect any of this to help you. Do not expect to be able to cite this or use this at all if you are black. This does not apply to you. You try this, it doesn't apply. So don't even think about it. You go for this, it doesn't apply. Section B, the person has one or more prior convictions for violating subsection one. A, vic C, a victim of the violation of subsection one is less than 18 years of age. A victim of the violation of subsection one is less than 18 years of age. So this is talking about if the kids want to do if the young folk that they can weaponize or use. Now your black children will not be protected. Somebody doing this to your black children will be overlooked by the prosecutors. Prosecutors will not enforce this if a white woman attacks your black children. That will not be, they will not be protected by this. Don't expect your kids to get protected. The person commits the violation of subsection one in concert with one or more other individuals. The person is in possession of a firearm during the commission of the violation of subsection one. Next, threatens by word or act to do any of the actions described under subdivisions A through D. Two, the actual or perceived characteristics of another individual referenced under subsection one include all of the following. Now you notice they're putting that part in yellow to highlight it because that's the part there about saying something that they don't like. That's the part that they were saying is that that's the part you're violating. The actual or perceived characteristics of another individual Reference under subsection one include all of the following. This is where we start, where we amend from the original law here. 
We amend it from just being on the basis of race, color, religion, gender, national origin. Now this is where they amend it. They tell you that these are the protected classes now, even though they don't protect us. Race or color, so you saw they lumped us together, race or color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression. So you see, we've removed gender. You see what they did here in Michigan? They've removed gender and replaced it with gender identity. So if some white man with a long beard walks into the bathroom right behind your six-year-old black daughter and says, I'm a girl too. I'm female too. No, that's seriously what this means. If a 50-year-old white male with a beard walks into the bathroom behind your six-year-old daughter and claims that he identifies as female. And if you say something about it, then he can claim that, oh, he felt intimidated. Oh, I felt severe mental anguish. This is where they smuggled this in and introduced this. Physical or mental disability. Let me go ahead and make this point right quick. Remember Jordan Neely was murdered. Daniel Penny here and understand something. Though I was talking about mental anguish Prosecutors were, oh, we don't know about that, about you taking action against somebody because you felt they were a threat. Prosecutors all but defended it and are still defending it. But they're going to tell you, oh, you better watch what you say to these folks here. Because if they feel threatened, well, we'll do something about you. Physical or mental disability. Physical or mental disability. Do you understand what that means? I mean, they're really missing the boat over there in right-wing, alt-right media. Do you see these other things they added to it? They added originally here before, it was only five things. Race, color, religion, gender, national origin. Now look at how far they've expanded that. And with three of them, Three on here for LGBT, only one for black folk. No mention of the descendants of slaves, only one for black people. That's it. For LGBT, this is what they did. This is Roland Martin's handiwork. This is Roland Martin's advice in action. If you needed another reason to tell him, choke down a Subway sandwich and shut the hell up, this right here, take a look at that. His Democrats that he told you, y'all need to vote with the Democrats. Don't let the Republicans get you. This is Roland Martin's advice. Take a look at what they did. 
nothing for black folk, nothing to deal with systemic racism, nothing for reparations. Take a look at what they did. Not one, not two, three of them in here. And it didn't take them forever to get around to this now, did it? It didn't take them weeks and months or years to get around to this. Didn't have to have a committee commission or anything else. It's not stuck in committee. As soon as they got in there, they jumped into it quick, fast, and in a hurry. So you went from five protected classes here before What, 10 on here now? Nine on here? Nine or 10. Yeah, because they got this. I got to get down here and read this. The name race or color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, physical or mental disability, age, ethnicity, national origin, association or affiliation with an individual or group of individuals in whole or in part based on a characteristic described under subdivisions A through I. Did you get that? Association or affiliation with an individual or group of individuals in whole or in part based on a characteristic described under subdivisions. So in other words, any gay pride organization, they're protecting associations, affiliations, a group of individuals. That means just that can mean your civic organizations and groups too, by the way. Never had these protections for black folk. The NAACP ain't never seen that. CORE's never seen that. So you've never seen that before. So they're making sure they dot all their I's and cross all their T's. Next on here, you can see it says, as used in this section, A, gender identity or expression means having or being perceived as having a gender-related self-identity or expression, whether or not associated with an individual's assigned sex at birth. Intimidate or harass means a willful course of action involving repeated or continuing harassment of another individual that could cause a reasonable individual to feel terrorized, frightened, intimidated, threatened, harassed, or molested, and that actually causes the victim to feel terrorized, frightened, intimidated, threatened, harassed, or molested. You notice this language was never here before when it was being invoked originally about black folk. The language was real sparse, real sparse, real plain, real threadbare. But these other folks here, oh, they, they got chapter and verse on it. That's not all. Because when you take a look at the real documents and stuff, here it is over here. By the way, it goes on a bit longer over here. It goes on a bit longer. When you take a look at the actual text of it here, I'm just giving you the Cliff Notes version. We're just giving you the Cliff Notes version. When you take a look at the actual text of it, oh, no. 
That goes it goes on a lot longer here. Yeah, they had time to think this over. I'll read that to you here really briefly. The people of the state of Michigan, the people of the state of Michigan didn't ask for this. A uh, enact section 147B A A1, a person is guilty of they struck out ethnic intimidation, a hate crime, if that person maliciously and with the specific intent to intimidate or harass another person because of that person's race. So you notice where they're striking out the language of the original penal code here. Those are striking that out. What you say. Well, I was oh, telling no, you here before, they're right striking over. that part out and replacing it. That's what they're doing here. Those are striking it out from here. I think line three, and then saying, okay, we're going from here. So instead of saying that a person is guilty of ethnic intimidation, it is now a person is guilty of a hate crime if that person maliciously and intentionally does any of the following to an individual based in whole or in part on an actual or perceived characteristic of that individual listed under subsection two, regardless of the existence of any other motivating factors. This is subsection two down here. These are the criterion under subsection two. You haven't gotten to it yet, but you get the idea. Regardless of the existence of any other motivating factors, uses force or violence on another individual, causes bodily harm to another individual, intimidates another individual, damages, destroys, or debases any real, personal, digital, or online property of another individual without the consent of that individual. Now you get here, threatens by word or act to do any of the actions described under subdivisions A to D. So if you threaten to do these things, Number two, the actual or perceived characteristics of another individual referenced under subsection one include all the following. So this is when they say, who are the individuals protected? We covered that already. Now they expand it to groups. Except as provided in subsection four, a person who violates subsection one is guilty of a felony punishable by imprisonment for not more than two years or by a fine of not more than $5,000 both. If any of the following conditions apply, a person who violates subsection one is guilty of a felony punishable by imprisonment for not more than five years or a fine of not more than $10,000 or both. A, the violation results in bodily harm. B, the person has one or more prior convictions for violating subsection one. C, a victim of violation of subsection 1 is less than 18 years old, and the offender is at least 19 years of age. The person commits, D, the person commits the violation of subsection 1 in concert with one or more individuals. And E, the person is in possession of a firearm during the commission of the violation of subsection 1. Now, listen to this next part. If the prosecuting attorney intends to seek an enhanced sentence, based upon the defendant having one or more prior convictions under subsection 4B, 
The prosecuting attorney shall include on the complaint and information the statement listing the prior conviction or convictions. The existence of the defendant's prior conviction or convictions must be determined by the court without a jury at sentencing or at a separate hearing for that purpose before sentencing. Now, did you get this? Did you all understand what you just read there as I said that to you? Sometimes language can be tricky, but did you get this? If the prosecuting attorney intends to seek enhanced sentence, in other words, a hate crime enhancement, based upon the defendant having one or more prior convictions under subsection 4B, now you notice they said the word he intends, they don't require it. Did you get that? They don't require it. It's up to the prosecutor's discretion. As I said from the very beginning, you will not be protected by any of this because it is up to the prosecutor's discretion. There isn't a law that spells out and says these are the terms and that they're required, that it's mandatory. You know, like they do black folk about drugs. The drugs that black folk tend to disproportionately use, how they target black folk, but that is a mandatory minimum sentencing. They take it all out of the prosecutors and judges' hands, and this is what it's going to be. And yet here, they're clearly telling you, and this is up to the prosecutor's discretion, it's if he intends to do so, so that's who intends to do it. And they tell you, the prosecuting attorney shall include on the complaint if he wants to do a hate crime enhancement on the defendant for having one or more prior convictions. The prosecuting attorney shall include on the complaint and information in the statement listing the prior conviction or convictions. The existence of the defendant's prior conviction or convictions must be determined by the court without a jury at sentencing or at a separate hearing for that purpose before sentencing. So what they're saying is it's between the prosecutor and the judge. They're saying it's between the prosecutor and the judge. The existence of the defendant's prior conviction or convictions must be determined by the court without a jury at, at sentencing or at a separate hearing for that purpose before sentencing. The existence of a prior conviction may be established by any evidence relevant for that purpose, including, but not limited to. Now, Jason, why are you going to all this work to emphasize this part of what they're saying? Because when you start, this is the part that gets black folk is when you give the prosecutors powers of discretion things that can be shown outside of a jury. So we've gotten all the way to sentencing and they're saying, well, this isn't something that to consider for the jury to consider. And then the existence of a prior conviction may be established by any evidence relevant for that purpose, relevant, including, but not limited to. So this is for your prior convictions, what they can use as evidence, a copy of the judgment of conviction, a transcript of a prior trial, plea taking, or sentencing, information contained in a pre-sentence report. Now, what does that mean? Information contained in a pre-sentence report. 
D, the defendant's statement. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can, will, even if you didn't say it, we'll make it up, and it'll be used against you. Did you get that? A copy of the judgment of conviction of your prior conviction, a transcript of a prior trial, plea taking, or sentencing, information contained in a pre-sentence report, the defendant's statement. Did you get that? Six, in lieu of or in addition to the penalties described in subsection three, the court may, if the defendant consents, impose an alternative sentence described under this subsection. In determining the suitability of an alternative sentence described in the subsection, the court shall consider the criminal history of the offender. The court shall consider the criminal history of the, of the offender. That doesn't mean they must. That doesn't mean they must. This is what I'm talking about, the loopholes for white offenders. The loopholes for white folk. That's what I'm trying to get y'all to understand. It'll be up to the prosecutor's discretion what he uses. Without a jury, when it's used, it's just the prosecutor and the judge. So even if you and your folks are sitting there with Ben Crump talking about these people's history of violating the law, it'll just be the prosecutor and the judge. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to explain this to you so you see what the language really says and what it's really telling you that they're able to do or not, or leave out. The, the fellow with the beard who followed your daughter into the bathroom in determining If you're not already subscribed to this YouTube channel, go ahead and hit the subscribe button now, along with the bell icon so you can be notified whenever a new video is posted. And if you're already subscribed, check and make sure that YouTube has an unsubscribe. And of course, be sure to give the video a like, as well as share it on your social media. The white supremacists hate that. And now, the Sunday Address. Okay, because of all the noise and disinformation going on out there from these white supremacists, we need to talk about the totally predictable Supreme Court ruling regarding affirmative action in schools. Let's get the obvious stuff out of the way. Affirmative action didn't come along until the late 1960s, but you've had white racists who've been telling that lie about a black man got my job, a black man got my place in school long before affirmative action even existed.
1940s. As you just saw, the white supremacist falsely claiming that black people are getting their jobs or their anything is not a new lie at all. They were saying it long before affirmative action even existed, decades before. And even after the Supreme Court's ruling last week, they're still going to keep on saying it because what they're really objecting to is black people. That's what this is really about. These universities and colleges were not letting black students in in droves, so this isn't the W that the white supremacists desperately want it to be. Clarence Thomas is himself a recipient of affirmative action. He certainly wouldn't be where he is without it, not because I say so, but because he said so. And these white supremacists don't like to hear about that, mostly because they can't read and can't think. Thirdly, we are the only oppressed group in this nation. Everyone else is at most inconvenient but they try to explode their momentary inconvenience into oppression when it's not. One of the political stumbling blocks we've been settled with, though, are the lawmakers, including everyone else in things that are supposedly meant to benefit us. So when you see the Supreme Court attacking affirmative action, this is actually a chance to do a much-needed reset. We don't need affirmative action any more than we need civil rights. What we need is black action, and we need black rights. Contrary to what these conservative extremists try to say, when it comes to school admissions, it's actually been the white students who have failed to meet the academic requirements and have been allowed in anyway because of race. And that brings us to all of this phony hysteria the white rights said about black students being allowed into universities because of color and nothing else. It's projection. They're actually talking about what they've been doing but trying to distract everybody by talking about black people. It's a lie. But when you're trying to commit a crime, you have no choice but to lie and lie big. Here's the reality. The real diversity admissions to these colleges and universities have mainly been the very conservative activists who have been complaining that it's black students getting in because of race. When talking about universities, you don't say that white students get let in because of race. Instead, they use the more distinguished term legacy admission. But what does that even mean, a legacy admission? Well, here's a few examples. Okay, would you mind defining what has come up a couple times? I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that um, I this is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is you're working hard to put food on your family. <laughs> There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee. That says, "Fool me once." Shame on, shame on you. If fool me, you can't get fooled again. I'm not, I'm not a candidate, so we'll see if, uh, if and when that changes. Why does the vice many, but not those of us who no longer account for a good or such freedom? The freedom is going to put money back into his mouth. Yeah, something here, that's something here. Who's a lot of clarity on some of government? Later that day, Senator Hawley fled after those protesters helped to rile up storm the Capitol.
despite a first-class education at Vanderbilt, UVA Law School, and Oxford in England. Here is his latest marketing effort designed with the help of his friends at the NRA, and this one happened to go terribly wrong. They were hoping we'd be so swoony over the sight of him polishing his pistol, listening to that porn music, that we miss the misspelling. Fred Wellman, a West Pointer, Army veteran with the Lincoln Project, put it this way, I can't be live, this idiot went to Oxford. Dear Lord, save us from the high stupid people. And that's just the tip of a very large, very stupid iceberg. The whole world got to see just how easily white students are allowed to bypass academic requirements to get into these colleges altogether when that whole celebrity college admissions scandal blew up four years ago. Felicity Huffman and Lori Lockman were getting their clearly unqualified, blonde-haired, blue-eyed daughters admitted to top schools. They both paid so-called admissions consultants to help get their intellectually deficient children into the schools of their choice. In the case of Felicity Huffman, she paid her consultant $15,000 and arranged to have someone, probably a black student who actually did know the material, secretly correct all of her daughter's SAT scores so she would have an artificial score of 1420. According to notes taken by Huffman, it would have cost her $75,000 for this consultant to arrange for a perfect SAT score. I don't know why she didn't just point out the money. I guess she figured as empty-headed as her child is, a perfect test score simply wouldn't be believed by anyone. But as much money as Felicity Huffman paid to bribe her daughter into her university, it was nothing compared to Lori Laughlin, who paid half a million dollars to get her two daughters into the University of Southern California. And she did it by falsely portraying them as growing students. Apparently, this is what her college admissions consultant came up with. By the way, I want you to remember that whole water sports thing as a way to get to these schools. You're going to be seeing it again in just a moment. By the way, that whole my little daughter's into rowing sports thing, that sounds and smells like crap. You tell somebody these girls do rowing as an athletic competition and that's supposed to be enough to get them into an elite school? Of course not. You wouldn't need to pay a half a million dollars for that. Though you would need a half million dollars to get the administrators of these Ivy League and elite schools to give your child the white privilege pass. Because anyone who thinks that these admission schemes aren't an inside job, anyone who actually says that they don't believe these college administrators are in on it, you're either stupid or a conservative. It's usually at this point that we have the Ben Shapiro, Steve Crowder wannabes who start shrieking and hollering in the comments saying, you don't know that these rowing programs or these swimming programs are just a front to let white students in who are not qualified. You can't prove that. Actually, I can Huffman and Lachlan's college admissions scandal broke in summer of 2019. But what most people forgot was that just a few months earlier, a Stanford University sailing coach pleaded guilty to accepting over $600,000 in bribes. He accepted over $600,000 from these wealthy suburbanite parents, and in return, he would guarantee that their academically inferior kids would get to Stanford under the guise of accepting these low-performing applicants as recruits for his school's sailing program. That way, it didn't matter how lousy their grades were. Now, do you truly believe that a sailing coach is just picking and choosing whomever he wants to get admission to, and the school's administrators didn't even look at who it was he was choosing? 
None of them saw it. Nobody even looked at the applications. What, is this guy a one-man application board by himself? Because the only way that he could do that is if he was. This guy is not a football or basketball coach. He was a lowly sailing coach. How does a nobody and a nothing like him have the ability to arbitrarily guarantee that he can get these undeserving, unqualified suburban brats into Stanford as long as he vouches for them? The only way he can do that is if he had a number of administrators there who were getting a taste. Look at how much Lori Lachlan paid just to get her two daughters into USC. Now, when you look at that half a million dollars, and you look at the fact that this guy got a little over $600,000 for the years of bribes that he had been accepting, that's how you know the total amount of money that's been kicked around in bribes to these schools just at Stanford alone has to be a hell of a lot more than just half a million. There's millions of dollars coming in every single year in the form of bribes so that these administrators will go ahead and allow the white privilege pass to take place. And yet, even after the scandal broke, nobody in the white media or the government or even among the nation's academics has demanded to know what students this corrupt coach let descend. Notice that? Even when the celebrity school admission scandal broke, nobody looked and said, hey, let's connect to this Stanford thing. Isn't this very similar to what we heard about from Stanford just six months ago? They're not revealing any names. They're not connecting the dots. This is meant to give a false impression that, hey, there's nothing to see here. Look at these black kids over here. Oh, sure, there's no proof that these guys don't deserve to be here, but they're black and we need a distraction, so here we go. And just to show that Stanford was complicit in these crimes, according to that corrupt coach, he claimed that he didn't keep the money himself, that it was put into the Stanford sailing program, and that he was the one being scapegoated instead of the people who were getting rich off of it buying themselves homes and paying their kids tuition with the money he was bringing in. And how much money were we talking about here? It was a hell of a lot more than $15,000 or even half a million dollars. Now, this coach claimed that he was just the middleman for this operation, but even so, one student in particular's family paid $6.5 million through this sailing program scheme to get their daughter into Stanford. I want you to think about that. One white student's family paid over $6 million just to get the administrators of Stanford to let their daughter in. This student was allowed to enroll into Stanford, but she never even got on the sailing team, and she wasn't even designated as a sailing recruit. See, that was just the cover story, just for the paperwork. Stanford staff knew that she wasn't there for sailing, and so they let her write in because she paid enough. The university only expelled her after the coach's bribes were exposed. But what happened to all that money? And of course, that Stanford sailing coach wasn't the only one two years after he got sentenced, you had another case that came to light in which a tennis coach at Georgetown University pleaded guilty to taking bribes to get white students into Georgetown under the false guise of them being tennis recruits. He placed at least a dozen unqualified students into Georgetown by claiming they would be recruits for the university's tennis team, including students who didn't even play competitively. And how much did he get for this corruption? He got at least $3.4 million. And according to the feds, that's how much he put into his own pocket. That's how much he got. If the Stanford sailing scandal is anything to judge by, God only knows how much Georgetown got. But of course, nobody in Georgetown ever looked at anyone's paperwork, or so the university administration claims. This is what's been going on in these universities. This is how a lot of these white students have been getting in. Now, if you have people paying that kind of money, 
to the school's sailing program. We're paying that much to this other school's tennis program. We're talking about the lowliest programs there that nobody cares about. Why would anyone pay millions of dollars for that? Because this is where the white students are able to get in. And how did this all slip by the school's administration or the school's dean? Am I supposed to believe that this sailing coach or that this tennis coach happened to also be in charge of their respective school's bookkeeping too? They're the ones who balance the books. So this is not about a few hundred grand. This is not even about a few million. It's millions and millions and millions of dollars going to these white universities every single year. And the schools are not oblivious to it. They're raking in the dough. Or are we supposed to believe that these Ivy League administrators, who are supposed to be the smartest people on the planet to hear them tell it, they conveniently have no idea that this is going on right in front of them? Forget about under their nose. Millions of dollars coming in, that's not under your nose, that's right in front of you. Nobody talks about it at cocktail parties or university functions. No gossip or rumors about it. These universities are basically small towns unto themselves. But absolutely nobody talked about this at all. Really? And I know it may be indelicate to say, but the white right loves to use non-white people as their stalking horses, their front men for these little racial operations. In this case, the pretense they use was that they're doing all of this to actually help Asian students. However, a lot of these Asian students come from very well-to-do families themselves, who come from the same social economic strata as people like the Huffman's and the Lockley's. And they also place supreme emphasis on their children getting into these top schools. I have to wonder, if these wealthy white families have been paying millions to get their white children into these schools, then have these Asian families who have been involved in these lawsuits also been doing the same pay-to-play as the Huffman, the Lawkins, and others? Why is nobody looking into it? Oh, and on a side note, the very next year after Stanford's sailing scandal, they announced that they were going to be canceling 11 of their sports programs. And which programs went on Stanford's chopping block? Not Stanford's basketball or football programs because the black students are the ones who bring in the lion's share of the athletic revenue. Instead, the so-called athletic programs that Stanford was going to cancel were things like men and women's fencing, field hockey, squash, synchronized swimming, men's volleyball and wrestling, lightweight growing, men's rowing, and co-ed women's sailing. Yeah. All of those things that were being used as the back door for wealthy white families to sneak their kids in. That's what they were going to be getting rid of. So you won't be surprised to learn that when Stanford announced this, they had all hell break loose from a lot of those wealthy white families, including the threat of lawsuits. Needless to say, when they were going to have their white privilege back door taken away from them, they immediately moved and said, well, we're not giving you more money. We'll use our money for lawsuits if we can't get in these schools. You can guess what happened next. Stanford quietly announced that they weren't getting rid of those programs after all. That's why these admissions consultants tell their wealthy white clients that they can get their kids into these schools under the guise of being a rowing athlete. This is the reason why every time you look up, you see these white college students engaged in rowing or regatta or swimming or whatever. All these colleges on the East Coast, they make it a point to show students doing those things. That's the white privilege pass. That's why those sports are completely white. Universities have long used athletic water sports as a way to bypass academic requirements for certain students so they can be arbitrarily admitted to these universities. It is routine and has been going on for a very, very long time. 
And the worst part about it is these suburbanites who they're letting into these schools, they're not getting in because they're excellent at water sports. At least when Charles Barkley's illiterate behind got admitted to college, it was because he was actually an excellent athlete. These white privilege admissions like Felicity Huffman's daughters or Rick Favre's kids, they can't even say that much. And schools also accept bribes from these wealthy parents who make donations to the school for a new building or whatever. By the way, when you see some white conservative organization paying big money for lawyers to bring up these nuisance suits against affirmative action, these are in many cases the same people, the exact same people who pay big money to these schools to get their own academically unqualified children in. Because these schools are not about education, not for them. They're about networking and contacts and getting one's foot into the door of the 1%. That's what it's really about. And this is how it's done. That's the reason why you had Huffman and Walkman's daughters, and you've seen the videos where these two little party animals were bragging that when they get to university, it's going to be all about partying and getting high. Talk about money well spent. And now that we've taken a look at who's really being led into these universities due to their skin color, that brings us to the next question. How many black parents do you see giving bribes for their kids to get into these schools? None. This wasn't a bribery program based on money. This was a side door for white privilege. And that corrupt Stanford sailing coach was just one guy at one university. When you look at what it was that Huffman and Lachlan's so-called consultants were telling them was going to be their daughter's golden ticket into those universities, you see that it's been going on at more places than just Stanford. This is all over the place, but it doesn't get talked about. This is the white media engaged in blatant racial censorship. When it comes time to talk about who's getting into colleges and universities because they deserve to and who doesn't, they want it to literally just be about black people and nobody else. They're manufacturing a phony racial narrative. And I'm giving you the facts. There's a reason that these big-time universities have billion-dollar endowments. You don't get those kind of numbers strictly off of tuition fees. You get them because these schools are understood to be the gateways, the exclusive gateways to elite power and access to power costs. What the racist right-wing zealots don't say is that without those black college and university students, this would be the totality of America's collegiate student body. Both Huffman and Walkman did some jail time as a result, about two weeks. By the way, on a side note, both Huffman and Walkman have gone on with their acting careers despite their criminality. They've still been able to get acting roles as if nothing had happened. And that white sailing coat from Stanford, he didn't do any jail time at all. The judge just let him off with a $10,000 fine. This is the punishment for people who commit federal crimes with these admission schemes. Slaps on the wrist. But hey, white privilege doesn't exist, right? Black people just make that up. This is the reason why the white right has made a crusade out of their phony racial hysteria, and why you see them shrieking the loudest about affirmative action in school admissions. It's because they know they're the main ones who couldn't pass a taste test, much less an SAT test. That's why I did that compilation of these conservative con men's greatest hits, or rather greatest misses. This is how smart these people are now, when they're supposed to be experts on what I don't know. We can only imagine how stupid they were when they were in school. By the way, on a side note, even though Clarence Thomas got his jobs in the 1970s due to affirmative action, he was willing to admit to it then, but he changed stripes soon enough. Don't forget, he was also affiliated with the Black Panthers when he was in college. It was the wording that I used. I said he was affiliated with them. He wasn't actually known. 
But then again, that becomes a distinction without a difference because if you look at Clarence Thomas, you can compare him directly to a real card-carrying Black Panther, Bobby Rush, and you see what he became over the decades. Isn't it interesting how all those young firebrands from the 60s and 70s quickly turned into old bootlicks in their 30s and 40s? White supremacists are very good at sizing up their bootlicks. They can smell the desperation and pathetic need to be accepted by NASA from a mile away. And it is precisely that kind of individual, devoid of morals or ethics, completely and thoroughly self-interested to the detriment not just only of themselves, but anyone who even looks like them. The white supremacy can use these eager fools, these useful idiots, as their crash dummies. And these cherry-picked bootlets will go right along with it, and they'll sing Massa's song louder than Massa does. Isn't that what Clarence Thomas has been doing? He has literally made a decades-long career out of showing how much he absolutely hates black people because he's auditioning for all of these wealthy white supremacists like that Harlan Crow character that he wants to be buying things for him and giving him money and take care of him like their pet, because that's what he is. And no matter what Clarence Thomas's qualifications or credentials may appear to be on paper, he knows what his real job is. It is to cover for the white supremacists who are funding him. White privilege has been and continues to be the largest and longest-running affirmative action program in human history. From the Homestead Act to the GI Bill and other programs for veterans coming back from both world wars to redlining all the way to the present. The suburbs were built with money from the inner cities, that is to say black residents' money. There has always been a gigantic conveyor belt taking this country's wealth from those who produced it and handing it to other people based entirely on their skin color. That's why the white Frenchman Frederick Bastiat said, when plunder becomes a way of life for a group of men in a society, over the course of time, they create for themselves a legal system that authorizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. And that's what we're seeing and have seen for hundreds of years. A legal system that authorizes theft, murder, enslaving black people, forcing black people to build wealth without compensation, to be raped and murdered without consequence, and then to praise the slave owners who did it, as well as the psychopathic racists who continue these practices and the society who benefits from it. White supremacists have been allowed to rename their plunder and savagery as hard work. The ruling white elite are called working families. People who have spent centuries with the government handing them every crumb of their daily bread, who built none of the country's wealth, but who came from Europe in the late 19th century to enjoy what others had made possible, call themselves producers. And then afterwards do everything that they can to attack and even kill the people who did produce the wealth that others enjoy. In order for a murdering thief to get away with their crime, they have no choice but to kill the witness. This is the world turned upside down, but now, having established a status quo like this, the only way they can keep it going is through more lies and more violence, which is why we see them so eager to back the badge. The function that the police serve in society under white supremacy is to put the credible threat of violence behind all of these unjust and unconstitutional laws and legal rulings. In effect, what we call laws are actually nothing more than a list of the things that the police will be allowed to pursue, arrest, or kill people over, because that's what gives the law its teeth. That's why they're called law enforcement. The word enforce means to put strength into something. And the courts are a key part of that. The white right realized they had lost the battle for hearts and minds decades ago, so they would need the courts to do their dirt for them because the politicians in these legislatures understood exactly what the voter backlash would be if they tried at the state level. Judges who are unelected and largely unaccountable. 
That would be the white rice trump card. Keep in mind, these are the same people who love that saying that when the government's afraid of the people, you call that democracy. And when the people are afraid of the government, you call that tyranny. But the white rights belief in that slogan was put to the test in the last 30 years. And as we see, they've been backpedaling at mock speed. All of a sudden, the people just need to do whatever the politicians tell them. And the politicians need to be immune and insulated from the people's ability to punish them for laws that they don't approve of. Don't take my word for it. In the infamous Supreme Court ruling Shelby v. Holder, none other than the satanic Antonin Scalia himself came right out and said it, that the reason that he was ruling against Shelby v. Holder to strike down the Voting Rights Act was because he didn't like the Voting Rights Act personally. He had been crusading against this since at least the 1980s. He said that the politicians would never repeal the Voting Rights Act because they were scared of what the voters would do if they tried it. So, as Antonin Scalia put it, the Supreme Court has to strike it down because the politicians never will. Gee, isn't that what the right right claim was democracy? The politicians scared of the people? But of course, that's only what the white right says when they think they're going to have it all their own way. But when the will of the people actually does touch the politicians, their white domination is threatened all of a sudden. It's no longer democracy, it's mob rule. And uh, what do they call a white mob that overruns the Capitol? A normal tourist visit. When you look at what Scalia gave as his feeble excuse for striking down the Voting Rights Act, what he said is the literal definition of legislating from the bench. He saw a law that he didn't like. He didn't actually have the authority to change it. He admitted that he knew what he was doing was actually the purview of the legislature, but he made his ruling based not on the law, but based solely on how he wanted things to be. Scalia said himself, this shows that the white right knows how weak their position is. This is why giving control of the federal bench has been so important to the white right. It's their last ditch. That's the reason why whenever they have these federal judges, the Federalist Society says, make sure that there's somebody in their late 20s, early 30s. Why? Somebody who will be on the bench for a generation, maybe two. That's the point. They know they can't go to the legislatures. They tried it in Michigan and at the federal level, and their schemes didn't even make it out of committee. They had no choice but to go to an unelected bureaucrat instead, which is what the courts are. And yeah, you see the white supremacists trying to pretend as if they won some sort of grand victory. They did the same mess whenever you had police who were being allowed to get murdering black people. For a little while, these white supremacists thought that they were on a roll until they weren't. They were telling themselves, see, the whole country's with us. Everybody's against you niggers. The whole country's with us. And that's what they thought it was, right up until the moment that it wasn't. All right, so that's what this ruling is actually about. Let's talk about what it's not about. White supremacy is a lie, the biggest lie ever told. It came into the world through deceit and deception. But as not-so-honest Abe said, you can't fool all the people all the time. So as a result, white supremacy has had to rely on violence to perpetuate itself every day ever since. My definition of white supremacy that I've given to you is the absolute control of society using physical, economic, political, and social violence for the exclusive benefit of those classified as white at the total expense of those who are not. But at this point, too many people are dependent on white supremacy for them to afford to be honest about it in the slightest. The tangible and psychic benefits are the incentives white supremacy uses to keep its beneficiaries loyal to it. The system of goodies, giveaways, and guarantees that are handed to those classified as white. But over time, these beneficiaries of white supremacy have developed an utter dependence on it, like a drug addict.
because it's insulated and protected them from having to compete. And because of that, whatever natural ability they may have had to compete in the world has atrophied. Because that's what happens when a physical or biological trait isn't used. It shrinks, weakens, and eventually goes away because the body no longer needs it. And for a lot of these white supremacists, they will brag and boast all day that they do so much hard work. They're smart and easily able to... There's a lot of them who aren't sure. So what you have has been this satanic version of Sin Survivor. You got a whole bunch of these white supremacists who know that they can't compete, but they want to fool all the rest of those classified as white as thinking that they need to help protect them, because that's what's really happening here. You have a malicious group that's saying everybody needs to protect us. And to continue the survivor analogy, so long as everybody sticks together, then nobody has to worry about getting voted off the island. Jason Black once said that insecurity is born of failure. When people fail, especially when they fail repeatedly or otherwise show themselves to have an innate failing that they simply can't overcome, they begin to feel insecure, and ultimately an inferiority complex develops. Insecurity and inferiority always manifest themselves through anger. That's why manufacturing phony white outrage is the go-to trick that the white light uses. And white power has relied on exactly these mechanisms for a long time, especially in Europe. It's a playbook they know very well. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote that violence can only be concealed by a lie, and the lie can only be maintained by violence. Well, that describes white supremacy's M.O. to a T. Everyone's familiar with the old expression, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The same goes for white privilege. It is an evil that dare not speak its own name. See, we can talk about black-on-black crime, but 88% of white people are killed by other white people. Yet you have never heard the white media, nor white politicians, nor anyone else talk about white-on-white crime. They just call it crime. People talk about the black divorce rate, but nobody talks about the white divorce rate. It's just the divorce rate, period. The white media does this as a means of racially pathologizing black society. When you talk about black people, it's always specific. We've got to say black crime. We've got to say black divorce, black illiteracy. When talking about white people, they don't mention the word white which is, of course, meant to say that it doesn't exist in the white community at all. There is no white illiteracy, it's just illiteracy. Though that's not to say that nobody understands when it's clearly what they mean. The use of racial euphemisms for white privilege is part of how they conceal it. For example, when people move from one country to another, they're called immigrants. But when white people do it, particularly white people from Britain, they don't call themselves immigrants, they instead call themselves expats, which means expatriates. Immigrants leave their own country because it was lacking. There were no opportunities for them. This means their home country failed them, or is a failed state altogether. Well, it's fine to talk about the way other non-white countries are, but when talking about white countries, especially those in Western Europe, it's not allowed. No matter what condition those countries are in, no matter how dysfunctional their economies are within leaders, no matter how high the poverty, they're never to be called failed states. And when talking about the standard racial discrimination that assigns the child's educational and financial opportunities to those classified as white, you're not allowed to call that affirmative action. They just call it jobs, education, and finance. And that brings us to the lie that the white rights been telling about affirmative action altogether. Affirmative action benefits primarily white women, LGBT persons, and white religious minorities. Very few black people have gotten anything out of it over the decades, though Clarence Thomas certainly did. And notice how you don't see the white media making a big deal out of that. Why? Because both the white right and the white left are flip sides of the same coin. They work together against black people. One of them pretends 
as if they are somewhat sympathetic to you, and that's supposed to get you to rush into their arms because you got another side who is so violently, vehemently, and poisonously hostile towards you. It's a psychological game that they play to get you to sit on your hands and trust that these good white liberals will stick up for you when they're not going to do anything of the sort. Obviously, the enemy sees this as a stepping stone to attacking the presence of black people in every arena of the society under the guise of we're fighting affirmative action. They're desperately looking for momentum anywhere where they can find it. But it just goes to show how far their power has dwindled. Like Captain Ahab, they've been chasing this great black phantom of affirmative action in college admissions, and in order to justify the time, money, and lies they put into it, They've had to push the fraud that this is some sort of silver bullet necessary to protect them from the threat of having to compete. That this will give the middle finger to black people like absolutely nothing else can. It's psychic benefits to make up for the tangible ones that aren't there. They get a momentary sugar rush out of it and they'll try to make it last long as they can. But this is just people who've conned themselves into thinking that because they spent decades pursuing this one thing, and they needed to elevate it to the level of being some sort of all-important cure-all, because after so many decades of failing, they got to justify it somehow. They have to tell themselves that the waste of time, money, and effort was worth it. And no, it doesn't have to be the truth. White supremacy is all about lies. And the people who are screaming and yelling the most about reverse racism know what they're saying is false. And when your position in the world is based on racial privilege, having things handed to you and lying every moment of every day to perpetuate it, what else can you do? Am I being too harsh on them? Not at all. I'm simply stating the facts. They feel insecure about the mountain of help and assistance they needed merely to be prepared them. So of course they want someone else to dump on because they can't accept their own failures. White privilege gave them everything, and they know it. And without it, they would cease to exist. As the old saying goes, if you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, then you know he didn't get there by himself. But as black people, our problem is the turtle has been given a platform by white supremacy and is allowed to make lying accusations about the black people who pointed out that the turtle is sitting on the fence post. The turtle is slow and contributes nothing but is shielded from scrutiny and criticism or even basic examination by a complicit white media who themselves have been doing the same things as Lori Rockland and Felicity Huffman. How many of these news anchors and white media executives and producers and publishers and white corporate owners are themselves the product of the very process of white privilege admission schemes like the one that Stanford Coach was doing? Now you already know, quite a few. Both the white left and the white right are knee-deep in it, so they both have to cover for it. One of them covers for it by screaming and pointing the finger at black people loudly as they can, and the other one lies by omission, by remaining silent and acting as if these lies are somehow basically valid. They accuse others of the very thing they themselves do. If anything, it's the black students who are being robbed of seats and positions and application spots that they're supposed to have. And because they go to dog bars first, in order to cover up for this racial privilege, we hear the usual suspect shrieking and screaming to beat the band that the two or three black students are somehow deficient. It's classic projection. Meanwhile, we literally, literally have the receipts on how much they pay to get into these schools. It wasn't their grades that got them in. It was their white privilege. These anti-black racists have to pay someone to give them the kind of test scores that black students get honestly. They attack black students because they figure black students and their parents don't have the financial means or political heft to punish them. And there's another angle here that needs to be mentioned. 
These lawsuits have for many years been pushed under the guise of quote-unquote helping Asian students. This is important because white supremacy believes in using middlemen or buffer groups as camouflage for their attacks. In South Africa, you had a number of buffer groups between the blacks and the white supremacists. You had biracial people, or as they called them, coloreds. You also had an Asian contingent there as well, who the apartheid Nazis called honorary whites. The white white in America uses a different term, model minority. Now, for many years, you've had a number of white supremacist adjacents who have been playing both sides, simultaneously claiming to be a person of color, while at the same time yelling the white supremacist line. It's a game as old as the racial hierarchy itself. Get some crumbly from the dominant society by living one's quote-unquote non-white status to whatever racist narrative the dominant society needs to push. Point to yourself as being the proof that the racist powers that be aren't racist at all. Push that lie that the people with the power aren't in control, when everyone can clearly see that they are, is one of white supremacy's favorite tricks. Try to muddy the waters. Derange the conversation by having a few people who you've cherry-picked and put them out front and say, why are these people the ones you should be arguing against? Anything to cause some white noise to drown out the truth. The first thing we've got to do, though, is to tell society the facts, because that's something that never gets done. We have to tell them the unpleasant realities they've been shielded from, that they didn't earn their position in work, that it was indeed given to them because it had to be. Europeans were fleeing Europe by the millions, and they could only save themselves at Africa and the Americas' expense. That's not a success story. They've tried to twist it into being one. The rapist who violates his victims and doesn't even so much as get criticized. The thief who successfully robs people and gets to spend his ill-gotten gains. The mass murderer who gets away with it. That's the true story of white privilege. The story they're never told and are terrified of hearing. The affirmative action ruling was pursued in schools for the same reason as the critical race theory hysteria, as a means to get this wedge issue introduced somewhere so as to also apply it to the rest of society. The white racial bias is clear. It's an undeniable fact, and that's the point. White high school dropouts are as likely to land jobs as black college students. Now, how do you explain that one away? Are we supposed to believe that white high school dropouts are just so much smarter than their black college counterparts? That they work harder or apply themselves more? Is this racial disparity because white high school dropouts are just so much more qualified than a black person with a degree? Or is it because the racial bias is systemic and woven into the economic social fabric? It's because white power used violence hundreds of years ago to seize control of the land and put in place a system of racial hierarchy that outlaws black people being able to enjoy the formal opportunities that exist. And they use the violence of the state to put in place laws meant to freeze society this way. Well, black empowerment has brought the heat, and the long, cold, white winter of injustice is on the verge of coming to an end. And if they think that attacking black college and university students is going to give their white privilege a new lease on life, then they have a lot to learn. Good evening, and be one. I'd like to take a moment to mention some of our contributors. Detroit Beauty Supply, Kevin Buckner, Michael Saunders, David Green, and Kimba Shakur. Salute to them and thank you to everyone for listening, liking, and sharing this message. Black empowerment only exists because of you.